Blog Talk Radio. today. Today we are going to be continuing the ongoing themes of how to create a better world. I mean, that's at base what we're all looking for, aren't we? We're looking for a better world in our personal lives and in our professional lives, and we'd love to see it in our larger community lives. I mean, really, at base, we all want to lead more productive valued, meaningful lives. And we're going to be speaking about that today in a specific domain that is so important to us all, and that's money, money and business. And the whole idea of bringing our attention, our values, meaning and consciousness to the subject that is otherwise seemingly um, kind of a, almost repelling of higher values. It seems that in the domain of money, people think they can just run rampant, uh, suspend their moral character, and go about whatever way they want, sort of like for some people driving in New York City, with abandon, without license, just whatever happens. But that's not really true. That's not really true. And to help us elucidate this and get clear about the importance of money as an energetic, meaningful interaction and transaction in our lives and looking at the whole idea of being socially conscious and responsible, we have invited to join us today Patricia Aberdeen. Many of you will recognize her name because she is one of the world's leading social forecasters, the co-author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Megatrends 2000. This has met with an international applause. It's been translated into many languages and put her on the top of the New York Times bestsellers list. She's well known for that. Her last book, prior to this current one that will be the main subject of today's show, Conscious Money, which was Megatrends 2010, The Rise of Conscious Capitalism. It launched a revolution in business. And for the past 25 years, Patricia's work in Megatrends and her talks, lectures, and consulting across the world, literally, 
has helped to transform the lives of many people and many companies who have been uh, wise enough to pay attention. At the end of today's show, uh, the presidential candidate for the Justice Party will be joining us as well, Rocky Anderson, the former mayor of Salt Lake City for two terms from 2000 to 2008, who uh, developed a national reputation for his being rather outspoken about what he saw as transgressions of the rule of law of the Bush-Cheney administration, Uh, what with uh, illegal warring in Iraq and uh, surveillance at home and the like. And he's uh, what we call in Chinese a real mensch, and he'll be joining us. He happens to be in New York for a few days doing a third, participating in Amy Goodman's of Democracy Now!'s third-party debates uh, to coincide with the national debates between the two party uh, leaders, of course, Barack Obama and Mitt Romney. So he'll be joining us as well, and he has a thing or two to say as well about the whole idea of the interface of being socially conscious, humanitarian, and environmentally attuned when it comes to developing business and commerce as well. So, Patricia, are you on the line? I certainly am. How are you, Mitchell? I'm well, Patricia. How are you? What a pleasure to have you. My pleasure indeed. My pleasure indeed. I'm so glad. I want to let everybody know that you were a guest on A Better World TV some years back when Megatrends 2010 was first released, and uh, it's such a pleasure to have you back. I remember it well, and we had a wonderful time, and it's my we pleasure did. to we be really did. with you tonight. Exactly, exactly, and since that time, you have given birth to yet another wonderful book, Conscious Money, moving down the same thematic road which I think is an excellent one. It's paved with gold, Patricia. And I'm really oh, glad. I... I think it will <laughs> really help our listeners learn more about what it's like to be responsible with money, responsible for money, how to both enrich and empower themselves with multiple bottom lines. And that's what I like so much about your work. It is enriching both financially when people listen, but much more than that. It's financial, oh, but it's also, you could say, spiritual. Oh, yeah. It's both. It's both. you got to be both. Isn't Rachel. it? you definitely got to be both. <laughs> you know, it's got to be both. For the likes of you and me, it's got to be both. That's right. That's right. Both and. I had to exactly. smile when you said it went down the same thematic road. That is certainly the case. However, this new book was really a tr- tremendous challenge challenge for me because it was addressed not to business or to managers but to individuals. And instead yes. of, of of a publisher who wanted me to put the spirituality, you know, between the lines, if at all, yes. <laughs> I was working with this, uh, a a publisher who was like, "No, that's that's what we do." You know, you need you need to come right out there. And so I had to oh. let go of this journalistic voice of objectivity and speak more from the heart. And uh, it was a little challenging, I must say, but it was mm-hmm. great, ultimately. It was really interesting. interesting. So you came out of the spiritual closet, you could say. Yes, 
Yes. <laughs> so to Cheerfully speak. so. Cheerfully and Cheerfully so, so, exactly. Welcomed by the world. Well, in, from that point of view, what has been the reception of the book? In it's the marketplace, because people know you as the megatrends woman. You and, of course, yes. John Nesbitt. You know, yes. you had set out a, a reputation that has lasted literally for decades. You've made a major influence in business and in the world of social forecasting. And uh, what was it like for you to release this book? Well, it's been it's been very well received. It's gotten a lot of good press. It was it, there was a USA Today weekend did a brief story on it the last weekend of September. Um, there's I did a blog on Fast Company about the creativity chapter, which you, you kind of wonder what that was doing in a in a book about conscious money. But in actual fact, yeah. it is through using our creativity in the workplace, whether your workplace yes. is your kitchen table or <laughs> IBM, yes. or whatever, it doesn't matter, right. or the U.S. government, using your creativity, that is to say, accessing both your rational mind, but also your heart and your intuition is the way you're going to come up with the solutions that are going to change the world today. So no longer can we focus on strictly a rational approach. We need to have creativity really in all the things we do because this world of ours was meant for creative problem solving. Yes, indeed. You know, I I don't want to um, detour us too much, but I would say that the so-called rational approach in the true sense of rational, really is based on the word ratio, which has to do with proper mm. proportion. Mm. It doesn't have to do with what you're kind of, and most people think of as just right. left brain logical processing. No, a lot that goes on in that left brain might have very, very um, sexy rationales but it's not necessarily <laughs> rational, okay? <laughs> so true, so true, so true. Do you know what I mean? So what's rational is actually heart and mind oriented, both. Well, heart so true and rational head. thinking. Yeah. Heart and head are two of my biggest themes in conscious money because, you know, the whole oh. idea of conscious money is to have a positive, life-affirming relationship with money, and we do that when we allow our values to inform our financial decisions all the while observing sound financial principles. So in other words, we honor the heart and we honor the head. And mm. when you have the heart and the head going in the same direction, you open the most powerful force that you have, and that is your will. You are united within yourself. You know where you want to go and you know where you want to be. But most of us, when it comes to money, don't have that heart and head approach. We listen to the conventional money wisdom, which says, values and your heart have no role whatsoever in your financial decisions. And even some of the most thoughtful uh, financial advisors and gurus still cling to this mundane approach to money, which is unfulfilling, uh, unsustainable, and also not very good for your money. Yeah. What what have you encountered? I, I want to actually hear you lay out the fundamentals of your book as you just began, Patricia. But I'm curious first, you've dealt with so many C-level uh, folks over the course of years as essentially as a consultant to help 
businesses get more on track. And you fundamentally have been speaking a similar kind of narrative for some time. Yes, you may veil the language a bit here, a bit there. Yes, I understand. But the essential themes are ones of helping people build moral character within the, within the business world. How do you understand how otherwise rational, ethical, humane men, largely, and of course some women, allow themselves to sort of, I use the image of people, you know, young people driving in New York City and feeling like they can just do anything, anywhere, any, any way, and that it's sort of lawless, like the Wild West. What is it that you've encountered in these folks that would allow them to remove any moral considerations to the way they make money? One word answer, two word answer, a dead yes. heart. A dead heart. Oh boy. Yes. A I dead know. heart will allow you to do that. <sighs> yes. The, the, the ability to shut off your values, the ability to shut off your feelings. Now, you, you can't really do that because yeah. e whether you want to or not, you would die. You have, <laughs> right. yeah, 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 really, 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 <laughs> a dead heart. That's true. You will. And you yeah. will die gradually if you do that. Um, yes. You will die. I mean, yes. absolutely. A slow no. death. A slow yeah. death. But, you know, this, and the reason the heart is dead is a, it, it's the same thing I just said to you about conscious money. The themes of conscious capitalism are unconscious capitalism, which is what you just yeah. described to me now, are the same. The idea that the, you buy it, you, the only reason to buy into the conventional approach to money or to business is because you think you're going to be more successful if you shut down your values and if you shut down your heart. And conventional wisdom in business and in money tells you, yes, indeed, you will be. But in reality, that's not true. And I thank conscious capitalism. For, I'm thankful that I, went, I came to conscious capitalism before I came to conscious money. Because in conscious capitalism, I could find all the studies that demonstrated, and I'm a, I'm a, I have a master's degree in library science, so I'm a research nerd. I, yeah. I love, I mean, you know, I, I, I have yeah. 30 pages of, of endnotes in Conscious Money, and that's about the same as I had in the Conscious Capitalism book. I mean, I'm a nail it down, nail yeah. the information down kind of person. So in Conscious Capitalism, I could find all the studies that proved that, in fact, the conventional wisdom was wrong, that, in fact, Milton Friedman was dead wrong when he said in 1970 in the New York, New York Times magazine, and I quote, famous, famous quote, the social responsibility of business is to increase profits. Mm. He was wrong. He was wrong. And yeah. now the studies yeah. show that he was. Um, very, very famous study put out for by instance, one of my yeah. yeah, for instance. Very famous study put out by one of my colleagues in conscious capital, capitalism, Raj Sisordia, marketing professor at Bentley University in Massachusetts, studied 28 well-known companies that manage their businesses according to what you could call the stakeholder model of capitalism, which is 
one of the most important trademarks of conscious capitalism. These involved companies that you and I have all heard about, like Google, like Amazon, uh, but also like traditional companies like Costco and Honda, and, you know, just mm-hmm. plain good companies like that. Yes. Over the course of 10 years, these companies outperformed the S&P 500, which if, if we've got some non-money type people listening, basically that's the 500 largest uh, U.S. companies that are traded on the U.S. stock exchange. It's considered, you could say, the benchmark. Yes, indeed. It is the benchmark against which almost any other kind of, of financial performance is measured. Over the yes. course of 10 years, the S&P 500 went up 100%, which was pretty good. These 28 companies, their stock market value increased by 1,000%. These 28 companies... Or 10 that, times the S&P. 10 times. 10 times the S&P 500. And that is only one of many studies that has come to the same conclusion. Um, every year, Fortune magazine comes out with a wonderful issue every January, the 100 best companies to work for. Some of them are private companies, so that so this study that that followed them had to take out the private companies. They found that those companies that took really good care of their employees outperformed the S&P 500 by six times. So not not quite as much as the other one, but these are enormous multiples. Heck, if you were a, if you were a money manager on Wall Street, you'd be thrilled to death to outperform the S&P 500 by. I don't know. Twenty percent. Oh my God! Yeah. Let alone double. Double would be twice yes. over. I mean, yes. these are, as you say, huge multiples. Huge multiples. I mean, so from that point of view, such things as the Calvert Fund and other mutual funds got spawned in that same light. Is that correct? This socially conscious funds. Can you speak well, about that a little bit? Well, socially conscious funds um, are measured year to year. Some day, some years they Lord do. Murphy, who was on our show years ago, who wrote the book Spiritual Politics, was one of, with his wife Corinne McLaughlin, was I know one them of well. the founders. They're old friends of, of mine. They're old friends. Oh, of mine. fabulous! I I wouldn't be surprised, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so they, any particular socially responsible investment fund can outperform the S&P 500 one year and perhaps not the next. The important thing to know about socially responsible investing is that most people understand, and there are reasons, misunderstand, and there are reasons why they do. They think that socially responsible funds only buy companies because they're good guys, not because they earn good income for for mm-hmm. investing. Now, let me give you the case of Amy Dominey, who is, of course, a pioneer in socially responsible investing. Uh, she created the first socially responsible index fund. Um, so she, many years ago, maybe less than 10 years ago, maybe seven years ago or so, she took a new approach in her fund called active investing. She had the socially responsible folks study all the companies that she was considering having in the fund and check them out for social responsibility. Only the ones that passed were then sent to a, comp- a, a sub-manager of the fund that studied their 
how, what their financial performance was. And so she chose the companies who were in the sweet spot, the companies who had great values, who honored the shareholders, the, stake, the stakeholders, not the shareholders, and that were just, just run well and, and had good, good, solid financial practice. And those companies, that approach of active investing really is what you want to be doing as an investor. And the best, the kind of SRI fund that I would want to own would submit their companies to this dual analysis. So you've got, the, you've got only the companies that really perform in terms of social responsibility, but there, you've also got the companies that have a strong financial, um, strong or oper, operate by good sound financial principles. Is that a result of good management or and and smart money use? Absolutely. Or is it uh-huh. Absolutely. Yeah. And the and the kinds of, one of the things that you'll find the socially responsible investing people say is that good management is one of the most important things they look for in a socially responsible firm. You, you've got to be a good manager in order to be socially responsible and also yes. be a good business person. So good, man, good sound management is a very important part of it. God knows that's hard enough to yeah. find these days. Well, I'm, not really. Outside of Wall Street, it's not that hard to find at all. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> right. But then you have, I mean, since you brought up Wall Street, Patricia, this is, first of all, let's let everybody know that you are listening to A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin. We are on every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. And today we are speaking with Patricia Aberdeen, who many of you probably know from her series with John Nesbitt uh, called Megatrends. Her last book on Megatrends of that series, Megatrends 2010. At that time, she was on A Better World TV here in New York City. And now we are speaking about her latest release, Conscious Money. And it's a very interesting book, Living, Creating, and Investing with Your Values for a Sustainable New Prosperity. I'm so glad to have you on the show again, Patricia, because Mitchell, this conversation, I've got to tell you, is is healing in itself for me and no doubt for our listeners because there's so much um, kind of shadow, darkness, concern, and fear and anxiety around making money and how to make it and the whole idea of scarcity and people feeling like they don't have enough and in today's times – because our economy has been so shaken by the abuses and exploitation and really immorality of Wall Street and the banking system, people are out of their wits with how to deal responsibly with money. And I feel that this book is helping to calm down the nerves of people and reorient them toward both money and at the same time, a high moral, ethical spirit of well, how that's to exactly it. why I wrote it. That's exactly why I wrote yeah. it because I I I want to make the point that values matter, and as yes. I said before, in conventional money wisdom, they don't matter at all. But your your values determine your choices, and your choices write the story of your life and of your yeah. money life. So. You know, that's very important. Make good you ones, make... in other words. Make good ones. Yes, Have you ever does. been asked to go to Goldman Sachs, for instance, or um, Morgan Stanley Chase, or 
uh, Bank of America or Wells Fargo? Have you ever entered those portals, um, asked to consult to top management? No, but hopefully they're all listening because, boy, would I ever love to. Yeah. Would I ever love to? Would I would I ever love to be able to go there and say, folks, this is what you need to be thinking about. I would not not for your sake, but for the sake of your customers. If you want to win their trust back, now I know there are people yeah. who would say to me, "You shouldn't help those people." Well, I don't want to help those people. I want to help their customers. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you no, know, you would, it would be redeeming if anyone from those companies listens to this show either live or in archive on Blog Talk Radio or on our website, www.abetterworld.tv, because we get a lot of people coming to listen in archive, in fact, most, actually, uh, at either of those two locations. Uh, I'll tell you, I would want to enter those portals with you and together. I actually would like to help them redeem themselves through right action and thereby help their customers and the world at large and our very precious environment and planet because the damage that is being dealt out is so severe on all of these levels. Patricia, I think you and I could do wonders for them. I think so, too. I think so, too. But do you think that we could help them become also more uh, materially profitable, or would that be scaled back in exchange for the multiple bottom lines? Well, that's what – you see, people – that's the misconception from my perspective that pe- that all of us tend to have, which is that um, – being responsible to people, planet, and purpose is going to cost you money. That's a mindset. I mean, even Walmart proved that that's not true. Even Walmart, yeah. when it embraced sustainability, showed business at large, and thank heavens they did. I wish they'd yeah. embrace uh, social responsibility when it comes to their employees, but nevertheless. Yes, right. <laughs> let's, I'm uh-huh. not going to badmouth them for having, what they did in terms of sustainability was great. And they proved that they could save enormous amounts of money by being responsible to the environment in terms of their packaging, in terms of their shipping policies, and all these other operational things that Art is supposed to be famous for doing. I'm sorry. Exactly, about that. energy Sound. efficiency. It will stop soon. Right. Exactly. I had Hunter Lovins on some time ago, who wrote a book about this, and Walmart is one of her clients, and uh, she was yeah. laying out how amazingly sustainable and energy efficient they've become, just yes, based indeed. on what they you're saying. I, I totally get it. Would Would a company or an individual? Um, be should they expect to have higher point, um, initial costs when becoming more sustainable? I shouldn't. I don't. I can't think of any reason why they would. Let's um, say because they might need higher quality materials to start with, rather okay. than the, the cheaper materials, for instance, in okay, order in to have. Of, I was thinking of yeah. individuals actually. Actually, when you said that, but Please. in terms of corporations. Typically, they would incur costs that would be not particularly important, and they wouldn't, first of all, if it was business, they wouldn't incur them unless they could, probably wouldn't incur them uh, unless unless they were real visionaries, unless they could work it out financially uh, with the accountants 
that the benefits that they would derive for them would be worth the investment. So, yeah, it yes. might cost a little bit more if you were a business, but in terms of a per, of an individual, I don't think it, it, it would cost you very much money at all, except perhaps the $10.88 that it will cost you to buy conscious money on Amazon. That's not very much. <laughs> That's yeah. not very much. I think that would be a good investment, quite honestly. <laughs> You know, Indeed. I want to say so, I want to say something Please. because we are talking about the triple bottom line, and I yes. want to talk about the word self-interest because I have a very strong feeling about this. There is nothing wrong with self-interest, up to a point. <laughs> up to yes. a point, we have got to take care of ourselves. We have got to take care of our families. You are not honoring yourself, and you are not honoring your family if you don't take responsibility for them and for yourself and that requires a certain amount of self-interest where it goes awry is when we take self-interest in so far that we betray our values the values that we hold dear and put those put false um, values like before your integrity as, as as a person so when you do that, you set up, when you put self-interest ahead of your deeply held values, you set up a dynamic within yourself. And this is why I say people think they don't have, some people think it's all about the money. I don't really, that's, that's what I put number first. But not exactly because your inner self knows that you've chosen that road and your inner self will communicate that to you. So when you do that, it sets up an inner dynamic that divides you in half and that really saps your strength and your and your energy. And this is the important thing when you talk about those people, when we talked about the people whose hearts are dead. Eventually, this kind of thing also distorts your normal, ordinary, walking around good judgment. So it's yes. not a good thing. And that's why... I can say that you benefit in terms of satisfaction and you benefit in terms, ultimately, if you keep stay with this for a while, in terms of um, just plain um, financial abundance and prosperity. We are speaking with Patricia Aberdeen, the author of many books, including the Megatrends series, and whose latest book is called Conscious Money. And it's a really interesting book. It's taking a lot of what she's learned over the years of research and distilled down for companies is now applied to the individual. So we can all, on a local level, benefit from Patricia's decades of work in this domain. I, I want to just share with our audience a couple of uh, comments by some of my favorite uh, leading thinkers such as Gene Houston, this profound and eminently practical book is pure genius when it comes to money and consciousness. It is not only a superb guide to the release of our money sickness, but gives us transformative skills that lead us toward clarity and abundance while enlightening our mind and spirit. Wow, that's quite an endorsement. Marianne Williamson also has such warm things to say. We can now, we can have a new economic era now where sustainable values and the genius of human consciousness outperform fear and greed. Conscious money imagines it, 
presents the evidence for it and creates a blueprint for achieving it. Nothing could be more significant contribution to our personal and global healing. I think that's beautiful. That's just beautiful. Well, you can only imagine how thrilled I was to receive those endorsements from these two individuals who, who are heroes of mine. Who are absolutely exactly, man. Really, really, Next really book nice. You me, and I know you well <laughs> enough to give you a shining endorsement, which is why I wanted to actually have you on the show again. So well, thank you. Thank you, you thank that's you, for thank sure. You, thank you. What would you say to our listeners, Patricia, relative to practical steps they can take in their own financial lives to become empowered around? In, introducing their or main, sustaining their values with money and to actually prosper by so doing? Well, conscious money may sound like a big topic, but it really involves three simple steps. First of all, conscious money starts within, starts within yourself, not with your bank account or your net worth or your stock portfolio or anything like that. It starts with you, and that's the inner dimension of conscious money. You mentioned the money shadow earlier, and in addition yeah. to those, the values that shine the light of consciousness on our money choices, we all have a shadow, and we all have a money shadow, which blocks that light. So one of the most important things that you could do in this inner dimension of money consciousness is to examine that shadow, take a look at it, and as Carl Jung said, the most powerful thing that you can do is to integrate the money shadow into integrate the shadow, but I would say integrate the money shadow into mm-hmm. yourself as an individual. So that's step one. You start within. That takes. I talk about that for three chapters because it's so 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 important. And then it's huge. when you. You're, yeah, when you're armed yeah. with these inner tools, when you've worked on yourself That's why, right. by the way, I am, as you know, a psychotherapist, but most accurately, a holistic psychotherapist. So in the work that I do with people, the consultations involve helping people get clear about the relationship with money. As really? well as with other human beings. Oh, of course. Wow. I have to. You know, I didn't know you were a psychotherapist. Where where have I oh, been? My. I didn't know that. Oh my. Fantastic. Fantastic. That's my that's my primary livelihood and uh uh it was out of that that I began the media because I was being interviewed as a therapist and a stress management consultant. Mm. Yeah. Fantastic. So anyway, Fantastic. you know, because people experience so much stress around money, there's so much unconsciousness around money as it is around, let's be real, about sex, money, and power. Yeah. These are the weak links in human consciousness where people buckle and they lose their integrity. But it's there where integrity is needed most. Look at what's going on with these, these political debates. They are calling each other essentially liars almost constantly. They use slightly finer rhetoric. But that's yeah. what they're saying. That's untrue. That's untrue. That's untrue. That's a partial truth. The integrity is gone. Nobody knows who to believe and what to believe. Is that so? Yeah. You know. Yeah. About yeah. money, about politics, which is power, you know, the governance, um, the the use of power, and the responsible yeah. use of power uh, if things are going well. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, please go well, on. I want to make a point. Yeah, I, I so appreciate the this. It's just all a way of saying how much I appreciate the work you're okay. doing. 
Good, good, good. Yeah. I want to just make an off-the-wall comment that about sex, though, sure. and our presidential candidates. It sure. is heartwarming to me that both of these candidates, whatever other flaws they may have, have <laughs> life-affirming relationships with their spouses. Yes, yes. Now, we don't yes. know the intimacy. We don't know uh, exactly what those are. But if you look at presidential candidates from the past, I think that these these two gentlemen who are running for president have more positive life-affirming relationships, as I, as I perceive it. May it may be, and in the case of Mitt Romney, as a Mormon, he could also be a polygamist. And when you say many <laughs> life-affirming relationships, you might be righter than you realize. <laughs> I have full faith that if he were a polygamist, <laughs> that, that we would know that by now. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> but I anyway, no, I hear your point. Uh, and I appreciate it. Uh, you know, it is foundational, and it it does speak well of both of both gentlemen. You know I wish does? their speaks, I management speaks, of money was better. In both I know. Days. I think it speaks well of us as a people that we have we have shown the shadow elements of that have come to light around sexuality in the past decade yes. have have yes. created these ca- candidates who who have relatively life-affirming relationships who have, as far as I can tell, pretty life-affirming relationships with their, yes. with their spouses. So I want to give them, that, give them credit for that. So there you have it. So now we talked about the, the money shadow. We talked about the inner work around money. And then when my reader is armed with these inner tools, and I have tons of exercises and um, this was really fun for me to do because I always had these exercises in me, and I had a publisher who was like, we need exercises. We need lots yeah, of examples. give me exercises. Need... <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so people can practice these little games What's about an exercise? the money shadow. Is there an exercise you can share with our audience? Sure, sure, in the, in the very first chapter. Um, and people have – I've done this what, with um, four different groups so far. They – it sounds so fundamental, like, you know, I expect them to go, oh, come on, Aberdeen, this is so, you know, we, we, we. they don't, they love it, they love it. That yeah. I ask people to choose their top five, and then their top three, and then their number one top value. And they enjoy this so much. Yeah. I have a list of sample values, and I, yeah. and I say, you know, my, your, your top value might not be on this list. Maybe I didn't think it up. So just add it. And and people love to do it, and they love to share about it, which goes to show we don't take time to do hardly any reflection in this world. And so these exercises are an opportunity to have a little fun and to do do something, an exercise in an enjoyable way in which you learn about yourself. Beautiful. A chance to slow down and yeah. self-reflect. Yes, exactly so. Yeah, exactly. So. so what what kind of results can a person expect? I mean, I imagine one of the great payoffs, I, I don't imagine, I know, because I am a practitioner of these principles in my own life and uh, have are. been for a long time. Yeah. But uh, the payoffs that you have seen are, of course, well-being, actually even greater physical, not to mention, of course, emotional and psychological health when people uh, are in alignment with their own integrity. That's yeah. the basis, actually, when one becomes disintegrous is the basis of illness. That's I love that up. word, disintegrous. Oof, 
Love that word. I just made it up. Yeah, I bet it's a word. Yeah, use it anytime. Just thank give you. credit where thank credit you, is thank due. You, thank you. Yeah, well, absolutely. I think the basic, <laughs> I think the ba- basic benefits are well-being, as you suggest, personal fulfillment. I mean, we haven't even gotten yet to the topics of spending as a consumer, of investing. And in both of these areas... Please also, go into them. We have we still have several minutes. We have, we're okay. Oh, good, good, good. Well, Open um, it up. Those are parts, come in part three of the book. So yes. I'm going to just say, when you, when you use your values in both of those two economic roles, you find great fulfillment because you're making a difference in the world. You're investing in companies that are life-affirming. You're buying products that are life-affirming. So that's that's enormously fulfilling as also. So I want to get to step two, and then we'll go to step three, and then pretty sure. soon we're going to be out of time. So, so <laughs> step two is very important. You have these, you've done the inner work, and then you go out into the marketplace. And I advise people to only have relationships, financial relationships, with companies whose values are similar to theirs, with companies who are as conscious as they are. And uh, I know a lot of naysayers will say, oh, that's, a pretty, that's pretty hard to do. There's no good companies around. Well, like I said, I'm glad I studied oh. conscious capitalism before I wrote about conscious money because I studied all of those good companies. And I, so I talked to people in the, in the chapter on conscious business. How do you identify a good company? How do you identify a company that has good values? Maybe you want to work there. Maybe you wanna, you're a small-time entrepreneur and you want to sell your products there. Maybe you're an investor and you, you, you're considering investing there. So people need to know a little bit. I know there are many people out there, especially people who are committed to changing the world and are listening to a better world, who mm-hmm. maybe aren't that interested in business or who have a very negative attitude toward business. But you really need to know that there are millions of positive, caring, good businesses. And so identif- learn how to identify them and, and have relationships with them. So that's part two. And then the third part is living the wisdom you learned in the inner dimension of conscious money and the knowledge that you learned about how to identify a good company. And I mentioned the fortune 100 best companies to work for. If if you're interested in this at all, in January, get a copy of or go to the library or go to the Fortune Archives and look at who they say are the best companies to work for. Right there, you've got an enormous amount of knowledge and intelligence. You can get up to speed about what a good business is pretty quickly by studying those companies and by by studying companies in conscious money and the companies I talk about in the Conscious Capitalism book and the companies that are listed in um, a book called Firms of Endearment, which is a book that had that study about oh, that is very 28 fun. companies yes. outperforming. So you can get up to speed on these matters pretty quickly. So then you want to live this knowledge and this wisdom in your role as a shopper, you want your values to guide you, and maybe they'll lead you toward the fair trade movement, toward um, questioning, toward questioning the toxins in beauty products and in uh, in uh, laundry detergent, the home home 
Household cleaning products and cosmetics are at the core of an enormous new movement that will be as big as the organic food movement because toxins can harm you more when you put them on your body than when you actually eat them. Isn't that an amazing thing? And why is that? Because I'm I'm very aware of it because the skin has no No mitigating mechanism. Absolutely. Yeah, mechanism. (laughs) Same with water. It's better actually to bathe in which I have purified, you know, filtered water than it is than to even drink purified water because you've got at least demic enzymes in there and hydrochloric acid. But yeah, no, no, your point is uh, sodium lauryl sulfate and the the rest of the retinue of chemical uh, (laughs) fertilizers um, are utterly dangerous and they've been populating our home products, as you were saying, for decades unabashed. But Unabashed. now they're getting they're getting bashed as now well they're they getting should. bashed. <laughs> but, and, you know, many of us have known this. You know, and I mean, you know, you and I have known this. I mean, literally for decades. This is not new information to us. But it's true that more of America and more of the world are beginning to see what the chemical industry has been doing to us for years, and it's thank- beginning to come out. Yeah, we please. can thank activists like the Environmental Working Group and Campaign for Self Safe Cosmetics for bringing this to yes. the attention of a more mainstream audience. So that yes. now, with more with more people embracing sustainability, because all of these issues, health issues, have are have a sustainability dimension, because these chemicals go into our water supply and they pollute the earth. Correct. And then, you know, uh, transportation is a huge part of it, too, of course. Um, and I, I don't want to talk about that because I'd rather talk a little bit more about investing and, if we have time, about the cre- about the creativity chapter. So, um, yes. again, with investing... I, I would like, if you value. could you name a few companies from... You see, the, the Fortune magazine top companies based on their criteria may or may not relate to what you would call your criteria for the defining of a good company to work for. They're there not based be... on their criteria, thank goodness. The Fortune 500 well, best yeah. companies to work for are put together by a, a, a by an, a third party called the places best called the best places to work institute and all they do is survey employees. It's the employees who decide who the best companies to work for are. Mm-hmm. Who would care? I mean, if 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 Google that's another said it story. Was a great yeah. company to work for. No, I get it. Care? I get it. <laughs> you know, Google interestingly, I, I'd like to actually mention a book that I have a chapter in called Heart at Work, anthologized by Jacqueline Miller. The original version of it was by Jackie Miller and Jack Canfield, and uh-huh. uh, she acquired the rights uh, some time ago and re-anthologized it. Just it was released in February, and I have a, a chapter or two in that book, Heart That's at Work, which is all about, you know, what you're saying. Great companies to work for, what it's like to have a conscious company that really cares about its employees, its staff, and they re-language the entire matter of, you know, it's not so much working for, it's working with colleagues. Absolutely. It's Absolutely a way different way of conceiving 
the whole workplace. So please go on, Patricia. This is so helpful. Let me let everyone know you are listening to Patricia Aberdeen speaking about her latest book, Conscious Money. She is world-renowned for her work in the Megatrend series, translated into untold number of languages, and she has helped hundreds of thousands of people as well as many companies get reoriented toward her social forecasting, and now she's doing it on an individual level through this book, Conscious Money. We actually have it available through our website, abetterworld.tv, where you can also listen to this show and share it with your friends in archive, and also it's podcast as well. So, Patricia, please go on. And shortly, we will be bringing in uh, former mayor, Rocky Anderson of Salt Lake City, who's running for president of the United States. And I'm very glad to say that uh, he embraces all of your thinking, Patricia. Here is an actual presidential candidate who is aligned with everything you're saying. And as mayor, he reduced the carbon footprint of Salt Lake City in three years by a full third. Wow. Isn't that fantastic? Yeah, just to give you an idea. He won't be with us still for a few more minutes. Please pick up where you were and enlighten our audience. Well, I value... Conscious investing. Conscious investing uh, is investing with the triple bottom line in, involved. It's definitely involving socially responsible investing. I, ad, I advise people. I mentioned all sorts of um, socially responsible mutual funds. Tell the readers a little bit about them. Yes. I ha- have identified three very conscious, n- not the only ones by any means, but these are, happen to be people I know and that I trust yes. and that I respect. Three um, very conscious investment in advisors who help yeah. people from all around the United States. Do so you we want to mention them? Socially responsibility, responsibility. Certainly, one of them is Trillium Asset Management. The other one is First. Is that T-R-I-L-L-I-U-M Asset that's correct. Management? Okay. Yep, Trillium Asset Management. I can Management. still spell. Good for you. That's good. That's good. <laughs> They're a great company. Great company. Yeah. Um, they have a rather a large minimum, but they also run a mutual fund, the name of which escapes me, but I will get back to you on that. Sure. Another one is First Affirmative Network. They sponsor the annual conference on socially responsible investing. And the third one is called Natural Investments. And all three of them are are appropriate for investors whose portfolio might be various different sizes. Okay. Okay. So excellent. Socially That's responsible excellent. That's investing. such good information. Yeah, it is very it's very very important. Yeah. And and so socially responsibility is a really important part of that. Now, you you probably say Patricia, you're crazy, but I think that knowing what your passions are can also be a very very good source for investment ideas. Are you excited about high technology or high fashion? Um are you all about organic food. Uh, imagine if you were a high-tech person who, oh, I don't know, sen- 10 years ago, even five years ago, decided to buy stock in Apple. You might be a very happy investor. So yes. If you were someone whose passion was organic food, and five or 10 years ago you bought uh, stock in Whole Foods, 
you would be a very happy investor. So I think that in addition to your values, you should also think about the things that you care about, your passions, what you care about deeply. And why is that? Because when you're passionate about something, you, you create a bubble that's kind of a learning, an automatic learning zone. Instead of having to pour over lots of information and learn it and study it, you just inhale it. And you know more about the subjects that you're passionate about than the subjects that you're indifferent toward. So use that knowledge in conjunction with the advice of a sound advisor or some good solid research that you do yourself to um, consider making investment choices. That's very, very interesting. I think it's a great approach. It's a great approach. And I'll tell you, I, it really brought something else to mind because it's so interesting for the length of time that that uh, people are uh, invested in a company that as a shareholder, they get to say their piece about the way the company is run. Sure. Right? All you have to do is own one share, one share. That's of all. stock, and you get a voice. You can go to the shareholders meeting, and you can yep. get up and say your mind. Many people have used that as a means of uh, speaking to the banking industry, for instance. They buy a uh, one share of Goldman or of Bank of America, and they get up and say, now, wait a minute, about this foreclosure matter, you know. Absolutely. And I'm saying that because it's well known at this point in time, you're right, five or ten years ago, people didn't know about Foxconn with in That's respect right. to Apple. But That's now right. we do, and we know that they have been very heavily exploiting their workers. And now Foxconn just two weeks ago were uh there were um strikes going on by their laborers who and make wrong. the iPhone. Riots. Riots, yeah. Yeah. That's right. So and as a shareholder that- you may have reaped uh much benefit from owning Apple stock, but now you can actually become socially active by Absolutely. seeking yeah. Yes, and let me quickly say, um, Mitchell, that and when we talk about when we talk about socially responsible investment funds or socially responsible companies, that all of these company, companies, in addition to investing, also play a big role as shareholder advocates. So you and I might go to mm. a company and make our little speech, and you know might be drowned out. But when Trillium Asset Management, when Shelley Alpern, who works for Trillium Asset Management, goes there in conjunction with TIA Kref, who she's recruited as part of her campaign, you better believe they listen to you because you have got the clout to be listened to. So all of these Absolutely. good funds and good good advisors are very much involved in, sh- in shareholder activism. Beautiful. That's an excellent point. This has been wonderful. Patricia, I would like to introduce Rocky Anderson uh, to the conversation for our last few minutes with you. We are going to have an extended broadcast on A Better World this evening because Rocky Anderson happens to be in the Big Apple, talking about Apple, and uh, we want to take (laughs) advantage of him being here. He 
was on a third-party debate conducted by Amy Goodman of Democracy Now! this morning, and along with a couple of other third-party candidates. And uh, we have the rich opportunity of having him here in New York and on A Better World. And as I said, as mayor of Salt Lake City for two terms, from 2000 to 2008, Rocky was a real environmentalist mayor, and the whole idea of socially responsible business is very much uh, one of his bailiwicks. And so I would like to introduce Patricia Aberdeen of Megatrains and the Megatrends and uh, the latest book, Conscious Money, to Rocky Anderson and Rocky Anderson. Here's Patricia Aberdeen. Patricia, it's a real pleasure. Great to be with you. Rocky, the pleasure is mine. The pleasure is mine. I'm not so far from Salt Lake City right now. I'm in Boulder, Colorado, as we speak. Oh, very nice. What a beautiful place. It is. It is. It truly is. And I've been talking for a while, and I'm really looking forward to learning more about you. Patricia, I I would like that to happen. I just, by way of transition, uh, Rocky... Patricia, as you probably know, has been on the cutting edge of introducing humane values and ethics back into the marketplace, back into commerce, back into corporate life, where, unfortunately, they were abandoned for many, many decades. But Patricia has been on the forefront of bringing them back and not only doing that, but also helping businesses and now individuals become more prosperous as a result of becoming more ethical in their business dealings. And you, having been mayor and now presidential candidate, I'd love to hear what you have to say about what you think about that entire enterprise. Well, Patricia, I uh, practiced law for 21 years, and a lot of my practice was devoted to representing people who had been injured as a result of abuses of power, either by uh, corporations or governmental agents. And uh, it it spanned from uh, those who had suffered from uh, antitrust violations, uh, securities fraud, including people who were at risk of losing their entire life savings after some of Utah's thrifts, went under and the the guarantee that had been promised by the state turned out to be insufficient and they had been misled into believing that there were sufficient assets. Can you imagine living your whole life, building up your nest egg, and then finding out that you'd been so betrayed by both the state and those who owned the financial institution that you trusted in? I also represented people who Uh, had lost loved ones, uh, both in the county jail and uh, at the Utah State Prison because of uh, the abuses of power by those who were in charge or staff members, uh, people who had been sexually abused by guards, uh, the mother of a mentally ill inmate whose uh, needs were uh, ignored by those in charge and uh, Uh, because of whose abuse uh, this young man ended up dying of a pulmonary embolism after being held in a restraint chair for 16 hours. I mean, these, and it really does all come down to 
how people in power, when they can really have an impact over others, how they conduct themselves, whether they're going to be ethical, whether they're going to be people who have empathy, who are going to do the responsible thing, or those who are simply greedy or uh, exercise power in such capricious, sometimes cruel ways as to have uh, sometimes lifetime impacts on others uh, who who suffer as a result of, of their conduct. So I see the same thing happening in government. That it's largely why I ran for mayor and now why I helped form the Justice Party and am now running for president. I'm seeing the same kinds of things happening as a result of, of some of our nation's policies toward people not only in this nation, where we now have the... the highest poverty rate since 1965, uh, where among 50 nations we have the highest maternal mortality rate, if you can imagine. Women dying in connection, women dying in connection with childbirth or pregnancy, the worst among 50 nations. And uh, the the rate for African-American women in this country is more than three times as bad as it is for white women. These are women dying. So, you know, we hear this constricted debate in, in this presidential election now. And when people talk about women's rights, it seems like they're always talking about abortion, contraception. Nobody's mentioning the, the, the maternal mortality problem in this country matters of absolute life and death. Nobody's mentioning that among all developed nations, there's only one country, Latvia, who has a higher infant mortality rate. That is, children from, during the first year after birth dying. These are things that I think most people think only happens in the developing world. Yeah. We are the next to worst when it comes to infant mortality. And it all, all of this relates to the fact that we don't have adequate health care coverage for people in this country, and we're the only country in the entire developed world that doesn't provide basic health care for everyone. And we're paying more than twice per capita what other countries are paying, and we have such uh, worse uh, medical outcomes. So these are the kinds of things we ought to be discussing, but in these constricted debates that we're hearing, uh, none of this is being discussed. What you could say, Rocky, is that the substrate of the health care system as it exists in the United States that are yielding these kinds of horrific statistics are a result of unbridled greed. One of the subjects that Patricia was speaking about earlier was the idea of self-interest, and I would like to expand upon that notion of calling it enlightened self-interest. But if we go in the other direction, we would find um, essentially a greedy level of self-interest, which is self-interest gone awry, which would lead to these sorts of health uh, health care for profit at any expense systems which we currently have in place which would yield these kinds of horrific statistics so it's it's a business gone awry a business gone afoul well but it's a politics 
run afoul also because we yes. could fix it if we had people in elective office that would stand up to the insurance and pharmaceutical industries. Yes. But they won't because of the power of money in our plutocracy. These folks call the shots with the millions of dollars that they put in not only to campaigns but these lobbying blitzes. We know that the insurance industry wrote most of Obamacare, which is the same as as Romney Care, and it was all developed by a, a very conservative think tank. Uh, it wasn't written with the interests of the American people in mind, uh, but it goes beyond this. I mean, it's always those without the power that end up taking the hit in this country. We, we have 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's prison population. We have almost 2.4 million people behind bars today in this country, by far the world's highest incarceration rate. And per capita. Yeah, absolutely, yes. And uh, with two, almost 2.4 million people in prison, we're spending uh, about $63.4 billion dollars. Imagine what that money could do, and a lot of it is because, of course, the the war on drugs. Uh, well, it's also because the prison system has become privatized, so it's each bed has to be filled in order for the corporation to get paid by the government for its services. Yeah, speaking of greed, these these private prison companies have even been known to lobby for enhanced sentencing so that people are held for longer periods of time, and they also lobby for new criminal uh, matters to, to be imposed, uh, or sentences to be imposed, so that they will have more people filling their prisons. But even if it weren't for the, the private privatization of prisons, we have all these politicians doing nothing but trying to enhance their political careers by enhancing sentences, because it does make good politics for a lot of these people to say that they're being tough on crime, but nobody seems to be paying attention both to the economic costs in this country, both direct and indirect, and also the, the abject human tragedy that results from this. This stands in interesting contrast to the conversation that we were just having, Rocky, with Patricia Aberdeen concerning conscious money and socially responsible businesses, because at the same time as this is going on, there is also a trend, perhaps, Patricia, perhaps you can speak to this, in business, at least in some sectors of business, where there is greater human ethics and sensitivity to the environment and to human interactions. Could you speak a little bit about that, Patricia? Patricia, are you on the line? Oh, we lost her. Isn't that interesting? Okay. She signed off. Did you hear her go? I did not. No, I didn't hear her go. <laughs> I just noticed. Uh, factually, so so be it. Let me just let everybody know you are listening to Mitchell J. Rabin on A Better World on Blog Talk Radio. I'm at our website. It's www.abetterworld.com. 
TV, and now for an extended version of our show, we are moving into speaking with Rocky Anderson, who is presidential candidate for the Justice Party, and he is briefly in New York City, and we are taking advantage of his presence here to speak with our audience about his platforms, because they differ distinctly in serious contrast to those you heard in the debates between the two parties that most people know about. Fewer people know about the Justice Party, and we at A Better World feel that it's high time for you to know about the platforms of Rocky Anderson and how he purports to change this country and its direction. Rocky, would you lay out for our audience what it is you would do in sequence if you were to become president. Now, we know that in 2012, this is not really going to happen, but third parties have historically been highly influential in the political process in moving the country toward most important legislation. And from that point of view, and who knows what will happen in the following election, you're uh, making tracks right now. What would you do if we could actually put you into the presidency? Well, let me first of all address the issue of why a third party. If we're not going to win an election, why are we doing this? Because you actually can win on the issues without winning an election. Mm. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt showed that when he ran uh, after he had served as president uh, as a Republican. He then ran with the Progressive Party against his hand-picked successor, William Taft. And he, Roosevelt lost that election, uh, but he, the, the kinds of things he was advocating – uh, an old age pension, uh, unemployment insurance, uh, direct election of United States senators, all of those things because he was addressing it, because there were so many people that supported him, there became a movement for those issues, for those positions, and they ended up being adopted as public policy. They helped change this nation when Ross Perot ran. And when he was allowed to debate, he tripled his numbers. That's what a real democracy is, getting the word out to the American people, letting them make their choice. Well, even though he lost, he's the one that put our deficits and our federal budget on the table for discussion, and it helped lead to major surpluses during Bill Clinton's second term. So we are advocating in this election First of all, an end to the plutocracy, getting the corrupting influence of money out of government. And even if it takes a constitutional amendment to doing it, getting the Citizens United case overruled so that there isn't unlimited anonymous money coming from the corporate sector, uh, public financing of elections would go a long way to cleaning everything up, having Free and equal time on the publicly owned airwaves would make a huge difference. It's, it's been done in other countries, and people are able to convey their message without 
going out and raising these hundreds of millions of dollars from people who are going to want something in return for those investments in campaigns. So, so the first thing is campaign reform. Campaign reform. Getting money out of politics. That's absolutely right. And and getting uh, corrupting money, not allowing any gifts to anybody serving in, in public office. Uh, for, I mean, we see these lobbying blitzes and people going on these trips and getting all these gifts from lobbyists. That needs to come to an end because this is all bribery, and it's all against the public interest. Secondly, ending the imperial presidency. Uh, there has been a trend during the, the Bush and Obama years to uh, – for the president to embrace more and more power that was never contemplated by the founders, never contemplated by the Constitution. Now we have presidents that just sent our military off to engage in wars without a declaration of war from the Congress, as required by the United States Constitution under the War Power Clause. Uh, now we have a Democratic president who's targeting U.S. citizens for assassination with no due process, who, with a bipartisan Congress, Republicans and Democrats alike, passing legislation that was signed into law by the President of the United States, the National Defense Authorization Act, that where they assume the authority of the United States federal government to round people up, including U.S. citizens, and imprison them indefinitely without charges, without a trial, without legal assistance, without the right of habeas corpus. This is absolutely unprecedented and certainly subversive to the most basic American values, probably the most un-American subversive piece of legislation ever passed by Congress and signed into law by a president. And yet, because he's a Democrat, the Democrats just clam up about it. I think if a Republican had done this, they'd be having congressional hearings, they'd be issuing subpoenas, there would be calls for impeachment, there would be demonstrations around this country. But you've got both of the parties now colluding to provide these unprecedented powers in the executive branch. And then when there is illegal conduct, like the illegal surveillance on American citizens, or the illegal torture that took place. We have a president now who says, oh, let's just forget about it, look forward and not look backwards, and not prosecute these people. Well, that is called a tyranny when one person assumes the authority to determine against whom and under what circumstances our criminal laws will be applied. And then when these folks go into our courts, to challenge the abuses of executive power, that's exactly what our Constitution contemplates with a system of separation of powers, with the checks and balances that each of the branches are supposed to be able to impose on the other branches of government. But now when people go into the courts, the, the very perpetrator of these criminal offenses, the executive branch, goes into the courts and tells them, you can't continue on with these cases because to do so would mean the disclosure of important state secrets and the courts are dismissing the cases, meaning the courts are completely checking out from that system of checks and balances. So there are no longer those kinds of checks on illegal conduct by the executive so branch. So you're saying essentially that the Justice Department is not 
enforcing the laws. Well, the Justice Department not only is not enforcing the laws, when private individuals are going into court, the Justice Department, our Attorney General, is going into the courts and telling them they need to dismiss the cases and not allow them to be tried on the merits, meaning that the American people don't know the truth. The truth is being hidden away. We have the least transparent government we've ever had in this country right now. Nobody knows the truth about torture. Nobody knows the truth about illegal surveillance. And, you know, when you have a president like President Obama, who collected more in campaign contributions from Wall Street four years ago than any other candidate in our nation's history, and then not one person on Wall Street is prosecuted for the massive financial fraud that helped lead to the economic meltdown that people are still suffering from, you wonder, where is our democracy? And then the answer is, it's not a democracy anymore. It's a plutocracy. It's government that is run by and for the benefit of the very wealthy. So my question to you, Rocky, is if you were to become president, what would you do about these several points you raised from the NDAA to the campaign financing issues to the lobbying issues to the surveillance of Americans right here at home? What would you do about that? Well, that's, that's a very broad question. I, I would make certain that we have the leadership in this country that would lead to major changes as to the, the war power. I would make certain that the war power resolution passed by Congress after it was clear that the Gulf of Tonkin resolution was based on a pack of lies, just as was the authorization to engage in force uh, against Iraq. Uh, so too was that based on a pack of lies. We need to make certain that no president ever again commits our nation to war without first a decision being made by Congress. As to the campaign finance issues, that is probably going to require a constitutional amendment, given what the United States Supreme Court did in the Citizens United case. But we need to make it clear that Congress has the authority to impose strict limits on campaign contributions so that we don't have people simply buying our elections any longer. Uh, and as to to torture, we already have the laws in place. We just need to make certain that those laws are enforced. So and, what we see here is that we have an enforcement issue because it's also illegal to torture. It's illegal to enter wars that Congress hasn't authorized, but these are going on all along. So it's not an issue, except for, let's say, things like Citizens United, of not having the laws, it's that the laws are no longer enforced. Well, in large part, that's absolutely true. Uh, in fact, the Convention Against Torture, which was ratified during President Reagan's term, it's very clear from the, the body of that treaty, and President Reagan made it clear when he gave a speech after the Senate ratification of that treaty, that now all the signatories, including the United States, have an absolute duty to prosecute those responsible for torture. So the failure 
to prosecute is itself a violation of the Convention Against Torture. And it certainly is counter to what was contemplated when the War, Power, when the War Crimes Act of uh, 1996 was passed, as well as the federal torture statute that provides for up to 20 years imprisonment for anyone who engages in torture and even provides for the death penalty, possibility of the death penalty for those who cause the death of somebody being tortured. These How are, do you feel about the death penalty? I'm against the death penalty. I think that it's uh, exercised capriciously. This is a perfect example of it. People aren't even prosecuted for torture that led to people's deaths when when our treaties call for it, when our own domestic law calls so for it. So under any circumstances in any state you would seek to end the death penalty in the United States? Well, well, the president probably would not. Well, the president isn't going to be able to do it alone. You need the help of Congress in terms of federal crimes, and you would need uh, the states to take action. But But states are already doing it, though. There's already a huge trend in, in this country. For lots of reasons. But are you saying that from a moral point of view, you are not for the death penalty? Both for a moral, from a moral point of view, fundamentally, but uh, I mean, there are some fairly close cases, like vicious prisoners who kill other people in prison, but what we've seen is an absolutely capricious application of the death penalty. It's always those who don't have decent legal representation, the poor, uh, those who are functionally illiterate. These are the kind of folks that are usually sent off to be killed. Gary Johnson, who's running as a, the libertarian candidate for president when he was governor of New Mexico, he called for the execution of a 13-year-old. So, you know, we're better than that as a country. Uh, we're one of the only countries in the industrialized world that has a death penalty. And uh, as I said, there is a real trend among the states. I believe there are 15 states now, plus the District of Columbia, that have done away with the death penalty. But even if you were just to look at it from an economic point of view, you spend millions of dollars more on carrying out uh, an execution, going through all the, the trials and appeals and everything else and all the years of delay, and, and there's no way to get around that. I mean, if you're going to have due process in a court system, you want to make sure, because there have been a number of exonerations, people on death row that have been absolutely exonerated, found innocent, a lot of them through DNA. That's right. So it, it's just it, it's the wrong way to go in this country, whether you look at the economics, whether you look at the morality, whether you look at how capriciously the death penalty is meted out, and obviously there's a real racist component to it as well. You know, right now, Americans are suffering, by and large, if they are not part of the elite 1% to 2%, as the Occupy movement really elucidated, there is more poverty than there has been perhaps ever, certainly since the Great Depression. There is less education for more people. There is voluminous uh, student debt because of the loans, and one of the points you have made over and again is that the volume of student loans surpasses credit card debt in this country, which is an awesome and daunting figure. 
we see, in short, there is a huge amount of stress in families across this country. There's just stress. We're into wars. We've been in the longest war in all of United States, States history. There are devastating taxes. There is uh, the effects of global warming. There's the effects of climate change. There is joblessness, on and on. People are suffering more than ever in our precious country that used to be a world leader economically and spiritually, you could say, because of the humane values that it has always upheld. What would you do? How would you make a difference in inspiring people and bringing them around to have a restoked, rekindled confidence in their future, Rocky Anderson? You know, I, I think that most people are basically really good people. They care about others. I think that there has been such a trend, though, in this country to consume material goods, to do everything people can to, to buy more stuff. I mean, what did we hear from George Bush following 9-11? Everybody goes shopping. Uh, you just wonder what was going on in that man's soul when that was the best kind of moral leadership that, yes. that could be. Uh, in other words, more consumerism. Yeah, and, you know, it, 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 a, a lot of it does depend on leadership, but not necessarily political leadership uh, in our homes. You know, parents have got to be spending more time with their kids. Our young people now, high school and college age, are spending on average seven and a half hours per day plugged into to one form or another of media for entertainment purposes. Students in four-year colleges in the, in the 1960s and 70s were spending an average of 21 hours a week uh, doing homework. Now it's down to 11 hours. Uh, th there's a real problem here, and we're falling further and further behind if you compare our students with students in other nations. Uh, we're becoming less competitive on a global basis. We've got to provide a sense of hope for our young people. And to do that, you can't just be talking about the problems. You need to talk about solutions and provide the inspiration. And, and I, whenever we're talking about these issues, I always point out that we have a history in this country of people not just electing the right people, because they're never the ones to lead the movements for good social progress, the kinds of things that are really going to help people out. That leadership always comes from the grassroots, whether it was the anti-slavery movement, the women's suffrage movement, the civil rights movement, the labor movement. All that started at the grassroots, and it was sustained by ordinary people who cared enough, who felt empowered enough to go out and make a difference. Well, it was so also the, from third parties oftentimes. Well, that's right. Uh, that, that certainly helps. I mean, there, there was... There was the women's suffrage uh, party, uh, but it, it, it really does take people feeling empowered and not just waiting until another election rolls around, not doing it just in the context of a political campaign, but getting out and taking a stand and, and doing 
everything we can to organize with others, mobilize. You know, that really is where the meaning of life comes, is, is being an engaged person, whether in your family, your neighborhood, your local community, your nation, and the world, to help make things better. And when you see things going wrong, not throwing up your arms and saying, oh, you know, there's nothing I can do about it. There's so much money aligned against us. We all have so much power to make a difference in this world, especially when we work together. And uh, just look at the Arab Spring. You know, we had dictatorships uh, that we saw in Tunisia, in Egypt, in Libya. And people in those nations didn't just say, oh, gee, it's been this way for so long, and what are you going to do? Uh, it could cost us our lives. They went out. They organized, especially with the use of democratic means of communication through social media. They organized. They took a stand. They said, we're not going to let up. We're, we're going to make it clear that we're not going away. And look what they did. They overthrew those dictatorships. We, too, can overthrow the dictatorship of corrupt money in this country. We can change things. We can bring back our most basic constitutional values. We can assert our power as individuals and, and say we will not allow our government to be spying on us. We won't allow these incursions into our personal privacy anymore. And if we don't, we're leaving so much worse situation for our children in later generations. Ben Franklin talked about the responsibility that we all have to keep our republic. And that's a generational responsibility. It, it, it's not just one generation takes care of it and then we all coast. Every single generation has that responsibility. And right now we have unbelievable challenges, but we also have tremendous power to organize and set things straight. Well, one of the problems that organizers and whistleblowers are encountering these days, as you well know, Rocky Anderson, is that uh, the whistle is being blown on them, and they are being arrested. They are being incarcerated. They are being prosecuted by the current administration. This has happened with uh, people who have stood up in the National Security Agency, in the CIA, in the FBI, as just some examples of people who are being prosecuted by their, their own government into which service they have been for decades. So what do you do about that in terms of people who are seeking to speak out and exercise their First Amendment rights that are being stripped of them? Well, it's not just a matter of First Amendment rights. It's a matter of all of our rights to know what our government right is up to. Yeah. And, and when whistleblowers disclose the violations of law by our government, by governmental actors, and then they're the ones that are prosecuted, the, the messenger rather than the perpetrator of these offenses, something has gone badly awry True. in our nation. When the, the WikiLeaks disclosures came out, there, were video, there was a videotape showing uh, the murder of people in Baghdad. We had a, a American gunships in the air. They mowed them down. And then there was a man in the street wounded. And these were all innocent civilians, by the way, including some Reuters uh, journalists. 
They were mowed down. There was a man clearly wounded in the street. You can see it on the videotape. The gunships came back around to shoot him. That is a war crime. No question about it. And then there was a man who pulled up in a van. He had two children with him. He got out to rescue the guy in the street. He was just a good Samaritan who came by. He was killed by these American soldiers. And nobody has been held account to account for those war crimes, for those murders. And yet those who made the disclosures now are being persecuted and prosecuted. So this begs the question, what do you think is the proper role of the United States in world affairs? Currently, we are obviously the world's policemen. We are actually simply seeking to marshal the world's natural resources for our own and to act essentially <clears throat> as protector of, of corporate interests that originated in the United States are now, you know, transcorporate. How, what do you think the role should be of the United States in world affairs? Well, the, the role should be to help provide stability and to provide high moral leadership. Uh, but it's gotten so bad that if there were an all-out genocide, I think there would be huge opposition in this country for the United States to work with others in the international community to put an end to that genocide because nobody trusts our government anymore. Nobody trusts the motives. I mean, we were lied into the war in Vietnam. We were lied into to invading and occupying Iraq. Uh, so there, there is, and it's for good reason, a real skepticism, uh, a real cynicism about the motives of our government. And a lot of the motives have been made clear by those who are doing the lying. Uh, these neoconservatives that signed off on the project for the New American Century, and anybody can look at that. Uh, you can just Google it, Project for the New American Century, signed off on by the likes of, of Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney and Jeb Bush and Elliot Abrams, Wolfowitz, uh, all these neocons that helped us uh, – get into this absolute tragedy in Iraq. And basically what this document says is that in the 21st century, here are the kinds of things that we need to do to continue to dominate the world militarily and economically. As and that's not our superpower, that's, by the way. That's right. And, and one of the ways this country has maintained this status is by having military bases all over the world. If you were president... What would you do about all of these military bases? I'd bring them almost all of I'd close up almost all of them, unless there were a clear showing that, it, it, that the bases were required for our, our true nation's uh, security. Um, but that's it, the discussion right now. Well, it's it, all called national security. Yeah, but it's really about dominating the world militarily and economically and For ripping sure off resources. Sure I mean, if is. anybody would listen to what Osama bin Laden said about why the attacks on this country happened on 9-11, uh, there was huge resentment in the Arab and Muslim world for the United States keeping bases, for instance, in Saudi Arabia. We had promised that after the first Gulf War, 
we would remove those bases. We kept them there, and we kept them there so that we would have that kind of, of overarching military uh well, more than presence, domination in that area. And you can imagine how these people felt about that. Osama bin Laden saw that as an invasion and occupation of the Muslim world. Uh, they also saw during uh, the Clinton administration for years these sanctions that were imposed on Iraq. Uh, a half million Iraqi children died as a result of those sanctions. That tends to make these people very angry. And then you hear Madeleine Albright, who is United States Ambassador to the United Nations, when she was interviewed. I think it was when she was Secretary uh, of State. When she was interviewed. Oh, that's, that's true. She was Secretary of State at the time. And she was interviewed on 60 Minutes and asked about the deaths of a half million children, and she said it was worth the price. Now, there was such outrage about that. She later backed off from that statement, but she never explained, then why did you do it? It was either worth the price or it wasn't. And, I mean, look what we're doing now. We're sending drones over to attack people that are picked out by President Obama and his advisors. They've got these baseball card-like biographies that they get from an intelligence community that's been so wrong so many times in the past. And they say, okay, kill them, kill them. Now, if this were being done by Bush, Cheney, and Rumsfeld, the Democrats would be going nuts about it. There would be demonstrations and calls for impeachment. But since it's being done by a guy with a D on his jersey, one of these Democratic team members, they all shut up about it. There's, there's no opposition to it. And so what we're doing, sending over these drones and in the process killing off hundreds, if not thousands, of innocent civilians, men, women, and children. It's all like a video game. How would you feel about it if it were your parents or brothers and sisters or your children or your wedding party or your funeral procession that was attacked and that there were people killed in the process by this country sending unmanned drones over? And the report's coming back now. There's a recent report showing the, the terrorist impact, that, that people that are living in these areas where there are repeated drone attacks, they're living in terror every single day. They don't want to go out of their house. Do you think they're loving the United States? Do you think they're loving Americans? Pakistan. I know so, what you're referring to. So more and more now, we're creating this hatred and hostility, all of which equates to a worsening of our long-term security interests. What would you do about Afghanistan? What would you do about I'd pull our troops out immediately. There is no reason. The president can't give us a reason. He says, oh, we're, we're turning things over to the Afghan army. There's record turnover, record desertions in the Afghan army. Afghan army members are now killing the Americans who are helping train them. Get out. It's not worth one more American fatality. Or anybody's fatality, for that matter. Of course not. And how about Iraq is still populated heavily with uh, security companies. Hundreds of thousands of people remain under the contract, subcontracts, by the United States government that are populating. Yes, it might not be United States military, 
but it is security companies that are still all over Iraq. Well, this privatization of the military with these security companies is so absolutely outrageous. I mean, there have been, and they were given immunity. This is what's unbelievable. And, you know, President Obama keeps bragging about he ended the war in Iraq. Well, that timeline was set by George Bush. President Obama didn't want to pull our military out of Iraq, but finally did it when the Iraqi government would not grant immunity for our armed forces. There have been these war crimes that have been committed, and they haven't been able to prosecute them because of the deal that was struck, really a deal that was was forced upon the Iraqi government at the time. Well, they wouldn't continue that on any longer. That's why we finally pulled our soldiers out of Iraq. But we, we can't continue to privatize our military because of these kinds of outrages that have taken place. And it's costing a whole lot more than it should. And I think it's, uh, it's really denigrating to our own military to, to train people to do these jobs and then send over these private contractors. Uh, we do have the largest embassy in the world in Iraq, and you wonder why is it that we built this enormous facility so that we would have a continuing presence in that country so that we would call the shots. Now, what about Pakistan? This is a country that has nuclear weapons, and we're creating more hatred there. We've got these unmanned drone attacks. Uh, The people in Pakistan more and more are hating Americans' guts, and this is really what we want from a population in a country that is nuclear-armed. It's so wrong-headed. You know, it's like the bully that is wondering why he's not loved by the other students when he goes out and harasses them and beats them up. Every day. It's a good image. I want to change the subject in our last few minutes here, Rocky, to a subject that you are one of the very few candidates discussing, and that's what it is to be facing climate change, global warming, and what would you do about building a green economy? Well, building a green economy is, it should be the number one priority of any administration. Uh, The climate crisis is the greatest tragedy facing our children and later generations. We're already feeling the impacts in dramatic ways, whether it's the drying up of river basins in the Rocky Mountain area, uh, whether it's lack of snowpack. We're seeing farmers now in places around the world that are saying they don't get the runoff from melting glaciers anymore because there aren't the glaciers formed during the winter so that they have that runoff. Uh, it's the, the uh, river basins in uh, Asia. Uh, all of them are being threatened now uh, because of climate change. People are dying more and more from heat waves. We're seeing more and more droughts. What would you do to support a green economy and renewable resources well, instead of the standard conventional energy sources? You know, in these debates, it seems like President, excuse me, President Obama and Mitt Romney try to outdo each other. This whole drill, baby, drill theme that, that we, we're going to have more and more reliance on coal, oil, and gas. 
And it's absolutely the wrong way to go. It's not only, we're not only falling far behind much of the rest of the world that's developing clean, renewable sources of energy, but we're creating uh, even a worse problem in terms of, of the climate crisis by emitting all these greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, building up this carbon blanket that is heating up our globe. And it has catastrophic consequences. We're going to see hundreds of millions of environmental refugees. Even the Pentagon has done reports saying that this is a much greater security threat than terrorism. So what would you do as president to alleviate, ameliorate the situation? The number one goal has to be that we free ourselves up from a reliance on coal, oil, and gas. As long as we're burning coal for our electricity, the game's over. We, we, we will not meet the challenge of climate change. We have to, first of all, put a moratorium on the building of any more coal-burning power plants and then start weeding out those that are in existence and replacing them with renewable sources of energy. Mm -hmm. We have enough wind. We have enough tidal power. We have enough power from the sun. Uh, It's just we have enough geothermal power in this country. If we we did what what happened after the bombing of Pearl Harbor and retooled our factories and put – Everything we have behind this effort, if we did that with green technologies, we would be energy independent. We wouldn't be fighting these wars for oil. We would be paying less for energy, and we would be helping solve the problem that that is so overwhelming globally uh, from climate change. And, and I, by the way, I, I, I think the term climate change is so innocuous. It really, we need to be talking about climate chaos or climate disruption mm. and the climate crisis. Because or as Robin Williams calls it global grilling. Yeah, well. It's it, not warming, it's grilling. You sound a bit like the modern day FDR. Well, I think that's, um, that's that's as high a compliment as I can imagine because FDR, I've, even though certainly he had his failings in some respects, uh, he knew how to lead. He knew how to use the bully pulpit to bring the American people along. They knew when they heard FDR speak that, that he was to be listened to, that they could get behind him. True and that, leader. And that doesn't mean he didn't have his opposition, but just imagine what he was up against with the Social Security system. You know, people saw that as, as absolute communism. You know, what do you mean? Take money from people, have them pay in, and then pay it to people as they get, when they get a certain age. But he sold the American people on the essential fairness of a Social Security system. President Obama hasn't come close to doing that. He, he's caved on a continuing uh, enormous Bush tax cuts for the wealthy. Uh, he caved when it came to, to having a real health care system that would provide basic health care for all of our citizens at much lower cost and with better medical outcomes. He just keeps folding to those forces that he thinks are 
arrayed against him. And I don't know what he thought it was going to be. Everybody just sitting around a campfire singing Kumbaya and making Republicans and Democrats get along. That's how he talked, and that would be really nice if we could achieve it. But it's never been this nation's history. You need the kind of leadership that FDR provided in this country to do what is required to end this new Gilded Age, a, a time in our nation's history when there is the greatest disparity in income and wealth than at any time since the 1920s. You know, because of FDR, we had a really healthy, thriving middle class for over 35 years. We had a healthy labor movement. People were making good wages. They had jobs. And we were respected around the world. This was a place that everybody looked up to, uh, where people could get a decent education, and we were globally very competitive. We 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 were the, at the top. What do you think about when companies that are in the business of making money, and this ter- this ties back to the first part of today's show with Patricia Aberdeen about conscious money and socially responsible business. Businesses have typically been in the business of making money, and they want to pay lower uh, labor costs if they can. And if that means going offshore, they're going to do it. And there are tax incentives to do that as well. How would you deal with that? Well, and unfortunately, uh, this whole trend came about primarily during the Clinton administration, and then it's just gotten worse and worse mm-hmm. with these so-called free trade agreements mm-hmm. where there are huge benefits for the multinational corporations. They're the ones that are making out like bandits, where the working people of this country have been so badly betrayed, and we've lost millions of good jobs. You know, we, we hear about the recovery now. Since 2008, President Obama saying, oh, all these new jobs – well, you know, in 2008, no, two, yeah, exactly, 2008 and 2009, 60% of the jobs that were lost were at least mid-level, mid-skill, mm-hmm. mid-paying jobs. Only 22% of the new jobs since then in the so-called recovery are of that category. Most of them are low-paying, low-skill jobs in the food service sector. <coughs> Or retail sales. That's not the way to have an economic recovery. <clears throat> Excuse me. Truly. So um, we, we need to get those back jobs back and not just say it like we heard Mitt Romney do last night. And, and by the way, I'm, I'm picking on them both here because neither of them suggested a way to do that. They just said, oh, we need to bring those jobs back. The only way to do it is tell the multinational corporations, we're not going to support this any longer. We're going to renegotiate these free trade agreements, and we're going to make certain that there is fair trade, not this free trade notion, but fair trade, where those employers who want to hire workers in the United States aren't at such a disadvantage when compared with those who are willing to go overseas and hire workers for much lower costs. And one of the primary things we need to do is change our health care system because 
in these other countries, the employers aren't paying these enormous amounts for health care insurance. We're left at such a competitive disadvantage in this country because of our perverse health care system that relies upon for-profit insurance companies. We're the only nation in all of the developed world that relies upon for-profit insurance companies for the provision of health care, and that's why we pay so much more, more than twice as much per capita as the average in the rest of the industrialized world. And then what we need to do... So are you in favor, then, of single-payer? Of course, single payer Medicare for all. Just take the uh, you, Just you have expand a, the model. You, you have Medicare it's already you, in place. You provide it for everybody. Absolutely. You know the administrative costs in these kinds of programs are between three and five percent. That compares with what twenty to thirty percent by the time you you pay all the CEOs bonuses and excessive compensation uh, method that's right and Mm -hmm. and with their duplicative billing and and all of them have different billing service i i know a doctor great doctor who retired because he was making less than it cost him to pay clerical staff to go through the insurance billings and get the the insurance companies to meet their obligation to pay for the coverage because as we know from sicko by michael moore they do everything they can to get out of payments for services and that's what our premiums pay for is those people whose jobs it is to make sure that our coverage is denied by these insurance companies but one other thing that we can do and and again you talked about fdr earlier we could put in place a works progress administration kind of initiative where the, we set up a jobs program to help rebuild our nation's rapidly deteriorating infrastructure and at the same time train and put millions of people to work. The WPA project put 8.5 million people to work. My high school, Ogden High School, was a WPA project. It's still ranked one of the three most beautiful high schools in the country. Mm. It's still serving now generations later. That community, and they put hundreds of people to work building it. This makes so much sense. We could be building up our roads, our bridges, and I'm not talking about expanding freeways because I'm totally opposed to doing anything more to increase the reliance upon the automobile in this country, but we could be building good train service across this Public country. Public transportation. Absolutely. And Electric motor systems. And we have the means to do it. You know, by the technology the, is here. By the time we pay all of the interest on the debt, for fighting these insane wars, it's going to be upwards of $3 trillion. And and we have these folks in Washington cutting back on education, on investment in jobs programs, on investment in, uh, in repairing our infrastructure. And infrastructure needs, unfortunately, usually or ignore because everything else takes precedence, so things just get worse and worse in terms of our deteriorating infrastructure. We need we need to make a commitment as a country, take an inventory of what our infrastructure needs are, and then put a schedule together and say this is where a huge part of our focus is going to be, as well as education, and employ people along the way. Beautiful. In our last minutes here, Rocky, uh, let's address this 
very serious issue of so many Americans losing their homes. They're underwater. The banks have run rampant. It's a true debacle that has occurred. Would you be in favor of a foreclosure moratorium? Well, I think what needs to be done is, and it would be done on a case-by-case basis, but if people have lost the value in their homes as a result of the, the housing bubble, for which our government is so largely responsible, colluding with Wall Street and these mortgage companies and all the rest, but if there are victims where their homes are underwater, as they say, and that means that their mortgages are more than the value of their home, uh, they ought to have their interests taken care of, and there ought to be help. I mean, by we, we, taken care of by. Listen, we provide zero percent interest to banks like Goldman Sachs, and then they turn around and lend the money the back to the federal government. That's what you're saying. That's right. And so the Federal Reserve Bank would be who eats the difference in the interest well, that keeps the house underwater. And the Federal Reserve needs to be brought under the Treasury Department so it's not controlled by the big banks that have ripped us off so royally. A private institution. Yeah, it needs to be under the Treasury Department so that there's political accountability. And there needs to be a watchdog agency so that it's not only the Fed chair, like Alan Greenspan, who kept coming before Congress and buffaloing them about everything. I mean, what he did was so absolutely outrageous. But that we ought to have a watchdog agency where they also come to Congress, and they have access to the information that the Federal Reserve has, and this watchdog agency reports to Congress so that we're, we know that we're getting the full scoop. There needs to be that kind of political accountability. Very but, it, but getting back to the mortgage situation, we've got to do everything we can to stem the, this outrageous uh, pattern of foreclosures. And we need to do the same thing for students that are carrying all this tuition debt. Uh, first of all, Are you saying forgive the debt? I'm saying, first of all, no, no. Uh, I'm saying that there should be, uh, if students have paid a certain percentage, 5%, for instance, over a certain period of years of their income, then the debt is waived. Absolutely. But I'm not saying that, you know, other students paid off all their debt and then somebody that's got $100,000 of debt and hasn't paid anything toward it just has it You're saying that's wiped out. We have two more minutes left, just as though we were on the national debates. What would you like to tell our audience, Rocky Anderson, in closing? I, I'd like to say that although it's important to be engaged and take part in the electoral system, don't let down after this election. It's after the election. It's time for us to organize, to mobilize, all of us stay engaged. If you have children, bring them up to speed. Make sure that they know what's going on. And it doesn't have to be a downer. You know, it can be so empowering to know that there are problems and then that we have the tools to do something about it. That's what it really means to be a moral actor, to be a real human being. And that's what brings so much meaning to life, especially when we know that we can do a lot of good for people who are in need. And I would include in that later generations who are going to be facing a lot of the challenges from the kinds of things that we've done or failed to do during our time. 
Wonderful. Thank you, Rocky. So Thank you, much. Mitchell. It's my pleasure. Your website is www.voterocky.org and justiceparty.org. Yes, and please go to voterocky.org, and I'd encourage everybody, if you click on News and Media, uh, you can see there uh, a lot of the television interviews, the debates. I was just on with Amy Goodman, Democracy Now!, this morning, and then I came back and was on Huffington Post for a two-hour independent candidate debate. Uh, we're getting the word out. Uh, I really urge everybody get involved and then just keep it up after the election because we can turn all of this around. Thank you a lot, Mitchell. Absolutely, Rocky. My pleasure. And while you're scanning the news and media portion of that website, make sure to also listen to my several interviews with Rocky Anderson on A Better World Radio and upcoming A Better World TV. This is Mitchell J. Rabin. Thank you so much for joining us. Visit us at our website, and if you are not yet a member of A Better World, sign up for our weekly newsletter at no cost at www.abetterworld.tv, abetterworld.tv. I so appreciate all of your attention to this, and also go to the website to listen in archive to my interview with Patricia Aberdeen on the subject of conscious money, and there you can also order her book. Thanks again, and I look forward to seeing you all next week. We will be speaking next week about the Breakthrough Energy Conference taking place in Hilversum, outside of Amsterdam, Netherlands, where we, I will be emceeing the conference and moderating panels. Think about joining us there in Holland. Bye-bye now.